Thank you, Gordon and Barbara. Turning your Bibles then back to Galatians 5, we read a minute ago. The title of this message is The Offense of the Cross. That's why we sang the song that we just did. And that verse appears uh, in, our, in our text here, of course, uh, in verse 11. Uh, the, uh, why do I suffer the offense of the cross? And our text is going to go through verse 12. Sorry about that, Paul. I should have had that. <laughs> I should have had that in the bulletin. I just got carried away, that's all. The word offense in the Bible actually comes to us in a few different meanings. And we kind of know that as we read these passages. On the one hand, the offense or offenses can mean our sins. So, for example, in Romans 5.20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. That is the sin, our sin needs to abound so that we see our sin and repent of it and ask Christ to be our Savior. So on the one hand, the word offense or offense means a sin. On the other hand, offense, probably most common, is that it means to make someone stumble, to offend someone, as you know. So Paul will say this, Acts 24, 16, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. So we don't want to be offensive to other people. In 1 Corinthians 10.32, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, the Gentiles, nor the church of God. That pretty much includes everybody. We're not to give offense toward people. So those two meanings we find often in the Scripture, but in our text in verse 11 we uh, have a different way that the word offense is used, and that is a reaction to truth. People are offended by the cross. People are offended by the truth as it comes to them. And so in verse 11, I, brethren, I still, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still uh, suffer persecution? Then notice the offense of the cross has ceased. And Paul says that shouldn't happen. The word offense here is the word scandalon, and we get our word scandal from it. It's a, it's a scandalous thing, that cross of Calvary. It shows us that we are sinners. It offends us in that way, and we react toward that. Of course, we do. So we have that sense, and uh, in uh, Galatians 5.11... Uh, we have there the offense of the cross. So in chapter 6 and verse 14 of our book, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It separated us. And you remember twice Paul, well, Paul does this and then Peter does this where they quote Romans, or uh, excuse me, Isaiah 28, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So the gospel itself is a rock of offense. It's a stumbling stone. Scandalon means to stumble, to stumble over something. 
So that's the sense in which, uh, of course, we're using it. So what is Paul saying in our, in our chapter here or our text here? It is that the, the, this message of the cross offends a lost world. And we just have to understand that. We look at it as good news, and it is good news because it saves you from sin and saves you from hell and, and the lake of fire. But when you come to someone and say you're a sinner, when you come to someone and say, you know, you, can't, you don't have anything in you that's good enough to save yourself, that's offensive to people. And since that truth that comes to error offends somebody, they begin to fight back against it. And they don't like that, and they uh, don't like to be corrected and so forth, and so it causes an offense to them. In, in our world today, I would say the word postmodern world, but that's a 40-year-old term now, we, we've kind of mixed all of these three meanings up. For example, uh, we should not be offensive. We know that. We shouldn't, you, you know, uh, be impolite. We shouldn't use name-calling, slander, you know, and those kinds of things with people making fun of people and so forth. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be offensive. We shouldn't offend. We know that. But we do need to be corrected from our errors. And when we're corrected from our errors, uh, we don't like that. Now, if you had little kids in your house last Thursday on Thanksgiving Day, maybe little grandkids, and sure enough, sometime mama said to those little kids, you can't do that, don't do that. And what was the look on that little face? I want to do it, you know? Uh, and they cry or whatever because it's a little child's reaction, and they don't like to be corrected about things. You know, why can't I do it? Really, that's the way the world responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why can't I do what I want to do? Why do, why am I wrong, and so forth? So, therefore, teachers of truth receive antipathy from the person who's been corrected. And that's our problem with giving out the gospel. We're teachers of the truth, but we're teachers of the truth to people who have to be corrected in their error. And, therefore, we conclude that all offenses are wrong. And we lump them all together. You shouldn't offend me. You know, you shouldn't be offensive. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about correction here. Let me give you a very up-to-date illustration. A man says, I'm a woman. Now, that's clearly an error because he's not. So somebody says, no, you're a man and you will always be a man. Now, that's the truth. Here's an error. Here's a truth. So he responds, well, that offends me. It hurts me. It disrespects me. And you should be punished for saying such a thing. Right? That's kind of the age in which we live. And now you could be punished for being the one who says truth to someone who's in error because they don't want to hear it. So what was happening with Paul here? Paul and all Christians, uh, for that matter, face this same thing with the gospel of the cross. Now, by the way, one reason why the, the cross of Christ was offensive is we don't live in that day, but if you did live in that day, there was nothing so ugly and offensive as a picture of crucifixion. 
to cease as you go down the road and someone's hanging on a cross next to the road and you see that person dying who's been there a few days, it's offensive to you. Just the picture of it is offensive. So the idea that you ha- we have a, sa- a crucified Savior was offensive to that world, and you kind of have to understand that too. So if a Christian says to someone, Jesus Christ died for your sins, that person can say, you know, calling me a sinner offends me. You're, you're saying that, that I'm a sinner. You're saying that, that uh, you know, I can't uh, be good. I can't save myself. And it may be that in certain societies, and this has always happened, it was happening in Paul's day, so the preaching of the cross became illegal. You can't do it because you offend people. You can't do it because you're saying people are wrong. You're changing our customs. You're changing the way we think. And Paul was often put in jail for that very thing. Now, just as a side note, way aside, Today, the anti-Semitism and the anti-Christianity we see going on in the world is Satan's purpose. Satan loves it because that's, that's where he comes from. He doesn't care about all the rest. He just wants those two things discarded and seen as illegal and seen as offensive so that the world says, that's illegal, you can't do those things anymore. That's so that's happening in our world in a larger sense. All right, so I want you to look at your outline that you have, and I want you to, to follow as we go through these verses. And here's what I, I want you to remember. Faith in Christ offends sinners. That's what Paul is saying to us. And he's going to get down to verse 11 and say, that's the offense of the cross. You just have to understand that. And, you, and we as Christians have to live with that. But leading up to verse 11 in our text, and actually the whole chapter, but we're starting in verse 5, is that the life of faith itself, your life as a Christian, your life as a believer, is going to offend this world. And yet, that is what gives you the authority, that's what gives you the power, if you will, to speak in the name of Christ. Look at my life. Look what God has done with me. Look, look how uh, uh, he has saved me. Let me give you that same message. So that's what he's saying here, and that's why we begin in verses 5 and 6. With, and, I'm, and you notice that in all four points I'm talking about faith, and, and he mentions it here. Faith does a number of things in your life. Faith avails much. Faith runs a race. Faith responds in the right way, but lastly, faith suffers too at the hands of the cross, the persecution that comes with the cross. So notice with me uh, as we go through these, and I think you'll see these, these thoughts in these verses. First of all, faith avails. Notice 5 and 6 again. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails, there's my word, hope avail, or faith avails, I mean, but faith working through love. Three words in there that are important. That is that faith waits, and faith hopes, and faith loves. Those things ought to be true in our life. If we're going to have any uh, qualification, any, any authority to speak in the name of Christ, faith waits 
You remember 1 Thessalonians 1.10, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's delivered us from that coming wrath, and we are waiting for him to come for us from heaven. We are people who wait. And one of the reasons why we're, we do that, we're, we're numbering our days that we may apply our hearts uh, to God, but our opportunity is going to be done when the Lord comes. We often say, I hope Jesus comes today, and I, I hope he comes today too. But I have to realize my opportunity to serve God and to do something effective in other people's lives stops when he comes back. The, the gospel is done at that time. And so we are people who wait, faith waits for this coming because it puts urgency to the, to the Great Commission. Imagine that Jesus, in standing there in his last moments on earth, speaking to the disciples and says, here's the thing I want you to do. What would you put in there? What would you fill in that blank with? Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptize them and teach them. That's what I want you to do. And so the fact that we're waiting for the Lord to come puts urgency to that. Faith waits. Secondly, faith hopes. Because also in verse 5, through the Spirit we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Titus Two, you remember this, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The hope that we have in Christ is two parts. We hope for the rapture and we hope for resurrection because we'll be in one of the two. We'll either uh, be raptured and when the Lord comes back, that's our hope, the blessed hope, or if we die, when the Lord comes back, we will be raised from the dead and we will go to be with him. So the hope that we have in Christ is exactly that. And you will find, especially in the New Testament, as you read through those books, you'll find the resurrection often referred to as a hope, that hope we have in life, that hope we have, you know, hope that is not seen is still hope, for example. And the hope uh, of... The God of our fathers, Paul talks about, is a resurrection. I was reading 1 Corinthians 15 the other day. And I know, you know, when I open up 1 Corinthians 15, this is a resurrection chapter. 58 verses, and this is all about how we're going to be changed, how we're going to be resurrected, what life in the resurrected body looks like, and so forth. But you know what Paul does in the first three verses? He talks about the gospel how Christ died for our sins, how he was buried, how he rose again the third day. Then he talks about resurrection. Why is that? Because our resurrection is based in the gospel. If you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be resurrected to life. We know that all people will be resurrected, but some to, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting condemnation. If you're going to be resurrected to everlasting life, you need to know the gospel, and the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so once we've put our faith in Christ that way, we read on through that chapter, and it describes 
what resurrection life is going to be like, how we're going to leave the old nature behind and this old body is going to be transformed into a body that can live forever uh, in heaven and wherever it needs to live and all of those blessings that come with resurrection. Faith hopes. We have that hope in eternal life. Let me give you just a personal illustration, though I, I know to many of you this is personal also. You know that our son Michael has had cancer. And, uh, you know, when a 45-year-old man has cancer, you think, well, he's, he's too young to, ha to have cancer. Well, he got done with his chemo. Everything finished fine. Uh, and then he had his final scan last Monday. And uh, when they, the scan was over, they called him and said, we need to see you right away. And our hopes went <laughs> like this, you know. And they said, we see something in your lung. So from Monday to Tuesday, when that meeting was, we need to see you Tuesday. And so we're thinking, and Michael's thinking, because they had already said, if it spreads to your lungs, there's nothing we can do about it. And he said, I went into that meeting expecting that, that that's what they were going to tell me, and that, that was that. Well, to make a long story short, they went in the next day, and they said, oh, that's just a benign nodule. We're not even worrying about it. <laughs> and he says, well, then why the urgency? And I think because holiday was coming. They wanted to get out of there in a hurry. But uh, they had that meeting scheduled anyway, and, and they did it. And so imagine the relief of going into a meeting saying, you know, they could be telling you you only have so much uh, time to live, and then you find out, uh, nothing to worry about. We're not, we're not worried about it at all. That doesn't happen for everyone, does it? Because other people uh, get different news. But what I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate with this is, for about 24 hours there, mom and dad had to think, what if the life of our son is taken? We'll see him again. This is what the Christian faith is about. If that's the way God says is the best way to go, then that's what we'll accept. We'll have to accept it. And if that's the way uh, the Lord needs this to happen, give us all strength to do it. Isn't that what we think? Well, to think the same thing, too, when a loved one dies for whatever reason, we put that loved one in the ground, we're, we know that that body will come out of that grave someday. And that body will come out of that grave and live forever and live in that wonderful place uh, called heaven with the Lord. So faith hopes in that. And we have that assurance that no matter what happens, that's our eternity that we have coming to us. Lastly, faith loves then. So uh, in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails. That's where I got that word faith avails avails anything but faith working through love so not only the waiting and the hoping but the loving love is sacrificial is it not you know this if you're a parent if you've raised children you know this now if you're taking care of older loved ones you know that love is is sacrificial it's giving love serves it doesn't seek to be served. Love wants to serve. Love serves other people. And love then avails. And that's why we have that word in verse 6. Why is it that then we take this gospel to a world? 
Why is it that some people give their whole lives on a mission field or something like that, give up the, the luxuries of this life, all of it, until the day they die? Why, why would we do that? And why would you, as a believer, put yourself at risk to talk to someone about the gospel knowing that that would be offensive to them and you might make, you might make you know, a friend into an enemy or something like that. Why would you do it? Love. That's why. Why do you correct your child when that little child's going to cry and, and uh, not like it and, you know, and out of love? Why does a doctor say you have cancer? Out of love so that you do something about it. And why do we say you need to be born again? It's got to be out of love. And, and if this life is the only th thing we have, if we only live in this life, then why go through all of that? But if there's an eternity after this life where somebody lives forever, then it's got to be out of love that we would even approach that person and say, you need to be saved. I can understand someone who's a criminal and someone who's done ugly things being punished in prison all their life. I can understand the death penalty. I think it's a biblical thing. I can understand punishment like that. But when I think of eternity in hell, and folks, whether I like the doctrine or not, it's a biblical doctrine, and God says it is, so I have to take it that way. I think of there, someone being there forever. I don't want anybody to go that. I wouldn't want anybody to have to suffer that. So love avails is what we're saying. So we're going to learn four lessons. Lesson number one, the world needs to see a faith that has perspective. That's what we learn in point number one. We have this perspective in life, and the world needs to see that in us, and it needs that from us. Secondly, faith runs. So in verses 7, 8, and 9, uh, you ran well. <laughs> you were in a race, and you were doing well, but you're not doing so well anymore. Why is that? You know that the Christian life is pictured as a race, right? You remember 1 Corinthians 9, 24? Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? And then he says, run in such a way that you may obtain. You run in such a way. I, th I think it was last week that I said probably the most common analogy for the Christian life is the word walk, right? And then we were talking about the word stand. It says we walk, and it says we stand for things. Well, maybe a third one is we run. We run a race. And it says we don't sit and we don't sleep. But we walk, we stand, and we should run also. So notice as he says this, you ran well. So first of all, who hindered you from obeying this truth? And notice I have the UN before each word. We have to run our race unhindered, uninfluenced by outside things, and uncorrupted. So he says, first of all, who, who hindered you? Where did this come from? You know what? I, I think Paul knew exactly who hindered him, and I think they knew. Uh, they knew it were these false teachers, these Judaizers who had come in uh, teaching that you have to keep the law to be saved. And Paul had combated that and taught against it. But too many of them were drawn away by that very thing. 
I like Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us. Put away those hindrances in your life. The sins, the weights, the old habits, the old things, the old friends if you have to. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus, who's the beginning and the ending. He's, he's the starting line and the finish line of our race. That word, that word hindered, just for a detail here, anacopto means to beat back. I thought, to beat back? Who, who beat you back? And I thought, you know, if you've ever run in a race, uh, a few times, maybe in school you were on a track team or, you know, something like that. Uh, you know, you're out front, and then somehow the crowd kind of pushes you to the back, and now you're at the back of the group. You know, you see that in horse races sometimes. But, but people races too. Who pushed you toward the back? You were running well. You were in first place. Why are you in last place now? That's kind of what he's saying from this from this word who kept pushing you back and let me ask you that who pushed you back in life who made you fail in your race if you were once running well once had a great witness for the lord once were bold in your faith and you are no longer who hindered you who pushed you back to the back of the pack that's not where you should be and so faith runs, and it should run unhindered. Secondly, uninfluenced, I say, from the word persuasion in verse 8. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. It came from them, but not from the Lord who has, who has called you, this persuasion. You re, if you go back to um, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4, it, it it, uh, he described these same people this way. This occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that it, they may bring you to bondage. Five, five ways that they were persuaded by someone they shouldn't have been persuaded by. Someone who secretly came in, shouldn't have been there. Someone who came in by stealth. That is, they had to be a pretender. They had to, to say something that wasn't so. And they wanted to put you in bondage anyway. Running the race can't be influenced or persuaded by people like that. So let me ask you again. How many influences do you have in your life? A lot, don't we? We have a lot of influences these days. And the more modern our world becomes and the smaller we might say because we're connected to almost anything in this world at any time we want to be, right? Uh, we can fact check. We can Google this. We can look up this. We can find a video on this. We can, we're influenced by so much. And you can listen to anybody who speaks anywhere in the world anytime you want to listen to them. So who's influencing you? You're running a race for God. Don't let those influences hinder you. 
Don't let them turn you back. Don't let them persuade you against God's will. And then thirdly, faith runs uncorrupted. So we have this short statement, of course, in verse 9. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. That's the second time, by the way, Paul has quoted that, uh, or it's the first time, and he'll do it a second time when he writes 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Well, you know, leaven is usually in the Bible a type of sin. And uh, sin comes into our lives in a little way and grows and then overtakes us and keeps us from running the race that we need to run. As a matter of fact, some, uh, some uh, lexicons, when they define this word, uh, like to use the word gangrene. Uh, that that leaven is like a gangrene. And if gangrene starts in your body, it is vicious and it is fast moving. And the only way you can get rid of it is with serious surgery, amputation sometimes, uh, and that. And you better do it quickly or your life uh, will be cut short. And so a little gangrene, a little sin in your life, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And, and you notice the word little, right? Both times that he uses this phrase here and in 1 Corinthians, just a little. And so what is he saying? You need to run a race. We're in a race. And you need to run it for God. A little leaven, a little error, a little influence that shouldn't be there, a little hindrance that shouldn't be there can ruin everything. Don't let that happen to you. I read this quote by Benjamin Franklin. It's kind of a, a well-known old, old quote where he's speaking about horses and horseshoes and things like that. He says this, For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. And for the want of a rider, the battle was lost. The losing of that battle started with one little nail for the horseshoe. You can lose the battle with one little piece of leaven that grows and contaminates everything. So the second lesson we learn about faith running is that people's souls depend on us running well. If we don't run the race, they're not going to hear the gospel from us. If we don't do it well, if we don't uh, run this race that we're supposed to race, they're going to hear a false gospel. They're going to hear it from somebody who really doesn't know the gospel. They're going to be persuaded against the gospel. They're going to be told things that they like to hear rather than things that offend them. We have to run this race well because people's souls depend on it. Okay, then third and fourth. Faith responds. Now notice here I have verse 10 and 12 together, and then we'll come back to verse 11. Sorry, I, I misprinted the bulletin so you didn't have these verses at the end on there. That's okay. We have them here. So first of all, faith responds. Notice how he says in verse 10, I have confidence in you. In other words, in the Lord, I, I think you'll do the right thing, that you will have no other mind. 
but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he will. And that's why I skipped to verse 12. I could wish those who trouble you again were even, even cut themselves off. I think those two thoughts go together. Then we come back to verse 11, the offense of the cross. Notice under faith responds, being single-minded. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 10? Don't have any other mind. Don't think any other way. Be, be single-minded, uh, and Paul had confidence that they would be. He wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 2.2 like this, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul was always saying, keep your focus right. Keep it narrow. Always know what you're after, why you're here, where you're going. It's so easy to, to lose this, but we need to be single-minded that way. You know, often we're encouraged not to have our belief in vain. It's another word I was doing this word study on this week, know, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And there are a number of words that our English word vain comes from, but the most common one is empty. Vain means empty. Kenos means an emptying. Matter of fact, Christ emptied himself of his divine prerogatives when he came to this earth. But in this sense, it is don't let your, your faith in Christ be empty, vain. It didn't count for anything. You didn't do anything for the Lord in your life. And you still have time. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you have time to do something for the Lord. And so be single-minded about what you're doing. Don't get led astray and have, and have nothing to show for it. And I think what he's going to say at the end of verse 10, by the way, he who troubles you shall bear his judgment whosoever he is. False teachers need to be judged. They need to be corrected by the truth. And if they don't repent of their sins and allow themselves to be corrected, God will correct them. And it's a pretty severe correction. And so whoever leads people astray and leads their souls away from salvation and causes people to end up in a Christless eternity, that person needs to be judged. And we need to uh, make sure that we bring the truth. So being single-minded, faith responds and being single-minded. And then secondly, faith responds by, I say, practicing separation. Here's the reason I say this. I could wish that those who trouble you. So we have this word trouble twice. We had it in verse 10, and we have it in verse 12. The word troubles, in, if we define this word, in, in our lingo would mean to evict someone. It means cast them out, put them out on the sidewalk, to evict someone. And that's what is happening here. I could wish that those who were wanting to put you out. And so I go back to chapter 4, verse 17. They zealously affect you, but not for good. Yes, they want to exclude you. They want to evict you. 
They want to put you out of anything that counts. They don't want your words any longer. They don't want to be offended by your Christian message anymore. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them, that you can help them. Chapter 6, verse 12, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you, same word, to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. They don't want to be offended. They don't want to suffer persecution for the cross. You know what you have to do? You have to evict them. You need to put them out of your life. And if it's in the church, you need to put that out of the church. Now, you have in verse 12 kind of a, an interesting statement. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Some have described that this as a holy sarcasm, and maybe it is. Paul wasn't against using sarcasm. He uses it uh, often in his writings. Just a holy sarcasm, and you can imagine what he meant by that. But I think also, even if that's what he was using uh, in a sarcastic way, what he was basically saying, they want to evict you, and you need to evict them. You need to put them out of your life. If you have these kinds of influences that are keeping you from running the race, keeping your faith uh, from growing, then respond in the right way, be single-minded, and put away these people or these things or this teaching. <laughs> Maybe it's just a program you watch. Maybe it's some kind of a blog you listen to. Uh, maybe it's a radio show. I don't know. You know, whatever it is. Or maybe it's a personal friend. If it's doing these things to you, then put it away. That's what he's saying. Now, third lesson we learn then is the world needs us to earnestly contend for the faith. We've got to contend. We've got to fight. Doesn't the Bible describe the Christian life as a battle, as a war, and as a fight? in a good way, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. We're in, a, we're in a battle. Satan knows it. His demons know it, but we don't know it. We're in a battle. We have to be willing to fight the good fight. So lastly, faith suffers, and that brings us back to the title of our message and, uh, that we have here, and that is the offense of the cross. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution then? Then, if I do that, the offense of the cross has ceased. What is, what is he saying here? Evidently, Paul was accused of preaching one thing to the Jews and another thing to the Gentiles. And as a matter of fact, when we get to the book of Acts and in those later chapters, uh, he has to explain, no, I wasn't saying that. I... I did, I, I did not agree with them. But in other words, to the Jews, he was saying, yes, circumcision is fine. But to the Gentiles, he's saying, oh, don't worry about it. You don't need to do it. And they were blaming him for, uh, you know, kind of uh, being nice to the, to the Jewish people to avoid persecution. So he says, if that's the case, if that's what I've done, why are they still persecuting me then? If, if I'm pleasing the Jewish people... Why did they stone me to death in, in, uh, in Galatia? Which they did, right? And if that's the case, then the offense of the cross has ceased altogether. There'll be no repentance. 
There will be no one changing their mind. If I'm just giving everybody the thing that they want to hear, if that's my only gospel, if that's my only message, it doesn't change anybody. Why am I even doing it? The offense of the cross has ceased, so has salvation ceased. And he says, that can't be, of course. I'm still persecuted. You know, I love the way Peter described persecution in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14. He said, if, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. <laughs> Stop. You know, Jesus said something very similar to that, blessed are you. When men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely, rejoice for great your reward in heaven. Peter says, blessed are you when you're reproached for the name of Christ. Let me ask you this, Christian. When was the last time you felt reproached for the name of Christ? It was a blessing if you were. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that a great statement? reproached for the name of Christ and the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. Then he finishes it by saying, on their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he's glorified. On their part, he's offend they're offended. I can't believe you'd tell me these things. I don't want to hear that anymore. Stay out of my life. Don't tell me that anymore. How many, how many people's testimonies for Christ have included something like that. I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to be around them anymore. Every time I'm around that guy, he talks to me about this guy. That you, you've heard that, right? And then finally, the Lord gets a hold of that person's heart, and they repent of their sin and get saved, and they say, bless that person for being uh, you know, a witness to me when I was that way toward him. Your part, he's glorified. And so, Faith suffers persecution. Folks, there's no way around it. If you're going to carry out the Great Commission, if you're going to try to live a Christian life in front of people, you got to expect it. It just doesn't go over well. <laughs> and Satan wants to make sure it doesn't go over well because you're in that battle. But you've got to do it. And then lastly, it does suffer offense. Then the offense of the cross is ceased do we stop preaching because it offends people do we stop preaching because no one wants to hear it no the offense of the cross is a scandal scandalon it's a stumbling block to people and of course they don't want to hear it any more than you didn't want to deal with that when you were when you were lost and before you got saved but it's the only way to heaven repenting of our sins saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I don't have anything in me good enough to merit salvation. That's hard on somebody. It's hard to do, to say that. But God loved you enough to send his son to die on that ugly cross that you might have eternal life. If God was willing to do that for us, surely we're willing to speak in his name. And suffer far less than that point number four or lesson number four the world needs to see how serious our faith is they need to see it and we may be in a time who knows in our own lifetime we've had it pretty easy in our life here but we could be in a time where it's tough to be a christian it's tough to speak out 
There may be suffering. There may be penalty for that. But what does it take to stop you? What will it take to stop you in your testimony or your word for Christ? Persecution? Anger? Somebody's offense is offended by you? It shouldn't. So let me, let me end with these two thoughts. Number, there, there are really only two conclusions that we can come to because of this message. Number one, you're a sinner and you need to be saved. You need what Jesus did for you on the cross. Whether you like it or not, whether it's something that pleases you or not, if you're a sinner, you need what he did for you. And that necessarily offends you. It necessarily points out your error. It points out your sinfulness. It's like a doctor saying, you've got cancer, and if you don't deal with it right now, it's going to take your life. And the gospel is saying, you have sin, and if you don't deal with it in this life, you're lost for eternity. Or the second conclusion is you're a believer. Maybe most people I'm speaking to today are. You have been thrust into this great purpose of the gospel. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, because that's what counts. And your faith needs to avail much. Your faith needs to run. Your faith needs to respond properly. And maybe your faith even needs to suffer. But if that's what it takes then fulfill God's purpose in your life. That's why we're here. That's what Paul is saying when he talks about the offense of the cross. All right, stand with me, if you will, as we stand and we think about these things. We're going to sing a song and, and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts as we do. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is the kind of message that sometimes is tough on us. And yet we thank you, Father, for giving us these words that we have. Thank you for a man like the Apostle Paul, Peter, John. Thank you for those great Christians throughout church history that have shown us examples of how to live. But Father, we thank you that your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, that our gospel comes not in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. So, Father, I pray, speak to our hearts in the way that we need. Encourage us in our race. Build us up in our faith. And help us, Father, to respond to these words as you would have us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song as Gordon comes and leads us. <laughs>